Thank you for being here today. I'm honored to be a part of this program. Um, Dr. Jennings and I met probably a year ago now, I think, in Phoenix, where I reside. Um, I, as Russell said, I was a pre-K through 12 school administrator and currently working for a company called Bark, which I'll talk a little bit more about. But Bark is a parental control app that supervises and monitors your um, children's social media as well as video gaming platforms and um, protects millions of children across the United States and in England as well. So I'm super proud of the work that I do. I'm also a mother of four children, currently ages 11, 11, 13, and 14, soon to be 12, 12, 13, and 14. So I'm in the trenches with you if you have tweens or teens. Um, up here is a QR code, so anything that I mentioned today is on my website. So if you haven't had experience with QR codes, you just open your camera and put it over the QR code and it'll pop up my website. I'll also be around if you have any questions after. Um, my presentation, I need to throw out the disclaimer, has some pretty graphic photos as well as information as to what our kids are exposed to. So I hope I don't completely scare you, um, but I am part of a national platform and a call to action to protect our kids. So I do believe that knowledge is power and being in the know means that you as community members can spread the good word and share with others what you learned today. So thanks again for being here. Um, I often travel weekly due to COVID. I'm not doing that as much anymore. I'm, uh, this is actually my first trip since COVID and I'm so grateful um, to be back on the road. But um, often when I'm on planes, people say, what do you do? And I tell them what I talk about and they say, oh, these kids these days. Um, as a parent, as a community member, I want you to know that kids these days are pretty fantastic and they're super genius. And this generation um, gets a pretty bad reputation. And today I'll outline for you our part in that and what we can do to help move them forward with a better reputation for the geniuses that they are. Um, this is, again, you know, kind of what I get on airplanes. So um, Bark was part of a documentary called Childhood 2.0. So I just want to show you briefly the trailer. It is a free documentary that just came out two weeks ago, and it really showcases from a kid's standpoint what they're up against as far as social media, gaming platforms, exposure to pornography, as well as sexting and exchange of nude photos at school. So I'll just let you watch this for a few seconds and then I'll be back. A long time ago, families were in communities. They were local, they were small. I was born in the very depth of the Great Depression. I was put to work carrying wood, carrying water. I knew how to shell peas, I knew how to break beans. We still didn't have electricity. I have two Instagram accounts. I use uh, Instagram, Snapchat. Instagram, Snapchat, and TikTok. TikTok and Fortnite. I can just scroll for hours on end. 11 hours a day. It's been eight, nine. Maybe like 12. It's actually been a way that we can keep track of them out there in the real world where things really are scary. The lives of kids were sort of changing slowly for a while. And then all of a sudden, most kids were able to get on social media and that's when everything skyrocketed. The rates at which they're experiencing problems continues to increase. We also know that that the teen suicide rate increased 56%. Last year alone, we received over 18 million reports of international and domestic online child sexual abuse. 
we have traded a false sense of safety and security for actually putting our kids in riskier situations. I call it the race to the bottom of the brainstem. So it starts with techniques like pull to refresh. Pretty much every guy has like an addiction to it, but oh, yeah. no one talks about but it. But it's just faster now, and it's younger. Well, yeah, like nudes of girls go around the school all the time. At the beginning of the year, there were multiple suicides before school even started. There were men that wanted to talk to children at all hours of the day and night. Don't be shy. On Snapchat, one thought it'd be a funny idea to talk the other one into committing suicide, and she did it. She's dead. After about six weeks, we were able to crack his phone. Kids right now are going to experience the worst of what we're going through. I will nervous. <laughs> the first time. Do you think your parents know that this happens? No, no, no. My kid won't do that. My kid would never. My kid's school isn't like that. You're wrong. Because what they see, they feel neurologically compelled to do. Right now, we're effectively living in an experiment. How is this going to affect us? We'll find out. One of the things that has changed with this generation that you may not be aware of is um, starting in about to 1999, um, post-Columbine school shooting, and then moving into 2001, those were some really big, huge national events, obviously 9-11. So anybody that was having children around that time, um, you know, we've talked about maybe having a thin veil of terror over our hearts. Um, we became aware that maybe the world wasn't safe. And so we've been parenting that way for a while. And what we've seen over the course of the last 10, 15 years going into 2020 is that these children have not been allowed to have a voice in their own conflict. So simple things like playground uh, recess behavior has been curtailed to say, if somebody kicks you, go tell an adult. Somebody says something nasty to you, go tell an adult. Um, what we've conditioned our students, our current students to do is you can't handle your own stuff, so you need to go tell an adult. So the locus of control has largely become the adults in their lives. So we have amazing 19, 20-year-olds that are launching you know, into the world. We have kids that are highly academically equipped going to university, and they have a 4.2, but they can't tie their own shoe. So when we look at coping and resiliency skills of this generation, they're at an all-time low. And it really isn't their fault. Systemically, from a school district standpoint, from a federal and state-level government standpoint, bullying prevention became you can't handle your own voice and your own conflict. And so many of our students have no idea how to look at another student or an adult that's disrespecting them and say, this isn't OK with me. Please stop doing that. Please don't call me that name. And so as we look at the coping and resiliency being so low, we're watching the anxiety and depression, as well as self-harm and suicidal ideation rise at epic proportions. And so I'll show you um, some statistics on that as well. So how does this collide with social media? How does it collide with the devices that we continue to just hand over to them without training? Prior to age two, most of our kiddos have about 2,000 photos taken of them, which means that's us 
doing that to them. And so as they age, especially through adolescence, what they know about life is life is to be documented, life is to be memorialized, and everywhere I go, I have to check in and take a perfect selfie. And so especially being a mother of all girls, I'm keenly aware of self-esteem, self-confidence, body image, that goes for boys as well. And so as we look at how often they're exposed to this and what they're doing as they compare themselves to others, we start to get very concerned about the issue of comparing yourself to others. So you have, at the school level, not being able to push and shove, not being able to touch each other, not being able to voice your own opinion about what just happened to you in the locker room, and then handing over these devices and saying, it's all about you, and everywhere you go, you need to show the world. And so you have a collision of many different things. So when I travel, I often hear these kids are burning their brains out on video games and social media. I would like the adults in the room to also look at their use. When I do student assemblies and I ask students, if you could tell your parents one thing about their phone or their device, they say, can you please tell my mom to get off Facebook or Instagram? She's completely addicted. Can you please tell my dad to stop playing Candy Crush? And so it's not just the kids that are doing it. Um, we definitely are part of the problem, and I would say we are just as addicted to our devices as our students. So when you look at this iceberg, um, what kids see, what people see, is what they post, right? Um, I'm sure if you went to my personal Facebook, you would see beautiful photos of my family, vacations that I've taken, speaking engagements I've been at. It looks like I have a pretty fantastic life, and I'm very blessed, and I do, but I certainly have struggles. I certainly have a lot of things that the world does not know about. What kids don't know about that is, is life's not perfect. Life is about the struggle that's below the iceberg. It's about persistence, it's about sacrifice. Many of our students that grow up in middle class to affluent families have no idea how they landed the opportunity to go to Macaulay School, to go to Girls Prep. They have no idea how they landed here. They just know that here it is, and I have to work hard, but I also have to showcase only the perfect parts of my life and or filter or restrict so that my friends and my family think that everything is great. And what we know to be true about the youth right now is not everything is great, and that the hard things that you and I have done and mature life experience that we have comes from the persistence and the failures and the sacrifice that we've had. Um, a lot of children do not know that big tech are, is really manipulating their brain. Um, a lot of adults don't know that. So this is just a, a clip from 60 Minutes called Brain Hacking, and it's about how big tech manipulates students and adults to really get addicted to the platforms themselves. So we'll just watch um, a short clip. Brown and his colleagues write computer code for apps used by fitness companies and financial firms. The programs are designed to provoke a neurological response. You're trying to figure out how to get people coming back. To when should I make you feel a little extra awesome to get you to come back into the app longer? The computer code he creates finds the best moments to give you one of those rewards, which have no actual value. But Brown says trigger your brain to make you want more. For example, on Instagram, he told us sometimes those likes come in a sudden rush. They're holding some of them back for you to let you know later in a big burst. Like, hey, 
here's the 30 likes we didn't mention from a little while ago. So the, all of a sudden you get a big burst of likes. Yeah, but why that moment? There's some algorithm somewhere that predicted, hey, for this user right now, who's experimental subject 79B3 in experiment 231, we think we can see an improvement in his behavior if you give it to him in this, bit, in this burst instead of that burst. So the issue with that is as a young 12-year-old, every time I hit my home screen button, Instagram says, uh-oh, Katie's getting off the platform. How do I get her back? The minute Katie hits the home screen button again, a burst of 30 likes comes through. And so as a young girl, my only you know, desire for Instagram is to see how many followers I can get and how many likes I can get. And so when you talk to a seventh grade girl and you say, what's your ratio? She will talk about, if I don't get 20 likes within the first three minutes, I delete the photo and I find a better one and repost. And it becomes a true addiction um, beyond just having the ability to filter your body, your nose, your skin, your hair, all of the things that also go along with that. And so I always show this clip to teenagers at student assemblies, and they're like, what? I had no idea. No wonder you know, this is going on. And so if they're holding the burst back, then they're sending out two likes. And then the next time she hits the home screen button, there's 40 likes. And the young brain is just completely enthralled with this. And so if you have a student at home or have a grandchild at home that you see doing this, explaining the mechanism behind it may not change the behavior, but at least you're giving them the knowledge that this isn't about you. You are liked. There's this queue of likes and followers over here that is really being manipulated. And so I think it's important, as Tim talked about brain development and how students feel about themselves, it is direct correlated and related to anxiety and depression and some of the self-esteem issues that our kids are uh, experiencing. So I often um, am in mom circles and they talk about like I can't let my kid go out and play in the neighborhood because he might get kidnapped. So I haven't looked up Chattanooga's kidnap rate, but in most major cities that I've been to, uh, the, the people that are hurting our children are generally not strangers abducting children. They're family members of yours, they're neighbors of yours, they're coaches, they're people that most students know. Certainly we have online predators, but the world is actually a decently safe place. And so when kids go to school, um, this whole sweeping movement of bullying prevention that came about about 18, 20 years ago, um, I'd like to redefine it. And I'd love for you to talk to whoever you know about this because I think this is really the crux of where these students are at in fighting for themselves and advocating for themselves and for recognizing that this world is not unsafe. Chattanooga is a very safe place to live. It's been named all sorts of great things. And so as students are at school, in my opinion, there are three categories of what I would call teasing. Um, you have bonding teasing, where groups of friends are giving each other a hard time. I also see 50-year-old men doing this during football games. That's called bonding teasing, right? Annoying behavior is when somebody doesn't know how, how you feel and says, I was just joking. That's one of you know, a teenager's or a young tween's favorite thing to say is like, oh, I'm sorry, I was just joking. Um, when we start to worry is when things get malicious, when you're being teased for what you look like, what you act like, the group you're in, your sexuality, all of those types of things, that's truly malicious bullying. I would say 80% of what goes on during the school day vacillates between bonding and annoying. Some kids are just annoying. Some kids are annoying on one day and not the other. But 
students are not you know, typically bullies. I can think over the course of my career of supervising 60,000 kids, I had maybe three that I felt were truly deviant and malicious human beings. And so when we look at the scope of bullying and everything is bullying, again, we have parents and administrators and teachers and coaches intervening and saving the day. And what these students need is a voice in their own world and a voice in their own conflict. That will improve the brain development, the coping, the resiliency, even if the structure at home is not there. If the structure at school is there with trusted adults, then coping and resilience goes up and the drive to go to devices lessens. This is just a kind of a definition of the difference between conflict versus bullying. Um, conflict being I don't like it and I can't cure it. Bullying being serious, potentially dangerous, and long-lasting damage. And so reframing bullying and conflict for students, that will lessen the drive to go to the device to emit the pain that they're in. If we were allowing students at the school level to face each other with the adult backing up and having not much to do with the conversation, students wouldn't then get online and feel like they need to spew venom because it would be handled at the school in between the two people that it's between. But typically what happens, and myself included, guilty as charged as an administrator, often I would facilitate the conversation and then I'd say something like, you good? Like, you guys don't need to be friends, but you need to be respectful. The only way a student can respect another student or an adult that has taken away their dignity is if they feel like they've had part in their own conflict and part in the resolution of it. And we often send kids, even siblings, like, you guys good? Okay, let's go on. And you walk down the hall and somebody's flipping each other off, right? So again, the behavior can't change unless students have a voice in their own conflict. So um, I love Jen Hatmaker. I don't know if you know her, but she's one of my favorite authors. And I had an opportunity to see her. And one of the takeaways from her speech was, human beings have two choices with pain. They either transform their pain or they transmit their pain. And a young adolescent has one choice, pretty much, to transmit the pain. So we're not allowing them to do that in person because that's unsafe and that's bullying and you know you can't handle it, it'll get out of control. So now we handed you for Christmas, you're 10 and you got your first iPhone. And so what is that student with a very underdeveloped brain going to do with their pain? They're gonna get online and either share pain with each other, peer to peer, or spew venom on a classmate that's hurt their feelings. So I'd like to just show you, and again, these are pretty graphic images, um, but this is what our kids are up against. This is a very typical Instagram post. It's called I Hate Hayden. It's an anonymous Instagram page about one of my former students. Her mom brought it to me and said, what do I do with this? So this is a student at the school made an anonymous page about Hayden. Hayden knows who it is, but can't prove it. This is not a school issue. This happened on a Friday night outside of school hours. So imagine if every single one of these were brought to a school principal or a school police officer, they're not gonna touch it because if they touch this one, they have to touch all of them. And so as an eighth grade girl who has a ton of friends and a very engaged home life, a faith-based home life, 
where are the skills going to come from to run past an interference for myself as Hayden? Like, what do I do with this? I can't delete the page. I can report it to Instagram, but Instagram does not care about our children. And so as Hayden, putting your head on the pillow on Friday night, like, how am I going to go to school on Monday? And the flurry of people commenting below about, yes, I hate Hayden too, or stop doing this to Hayden. So two different camps of kids. Um, the photo on the right-hand side is when she went to school the following Monday, that person was congregating all of the kids in person and talking about this page and whatever conflict they were going through. So we've done a horrible job of training our kids how to use technology, um, how to defend yourself, how to advocate. As I said, if we've done this bullying prevention thing, Hayden by eighth grade has had very, very little practice in how to assert herself and how to advocate for herself. And now she's going into high school with very little skills. And so overnight, this is happening all day long, all night long for many of our students in this country. Additionally, um, it doesn't matter if you're a girl or a boy, both of these examples are from girls, but attacking each other, you've seen adults do it, whether it's about politics or whatever the subject is, it's no surprise that students are doing this to each other about body image, about any subject. And so we've given them free reign, and typically when these issues come to the school level and the school decides to intervene because it's impeding the learning environment, the adult in the room typically does not know the nuance of the relationship between the two students. And so that is critical for any trusted adult, you as a parent, as a grandparent, a teacher, an educator, an administrator, to be able to triage the situation and allow these two students to have the ability to restore their dignity. And I really think that's the crux of what's going on with our students is they don't have those opportunities. On the same front, as we hand these devices over to our students, we've given them no training. And so this photo is a very typical seventh grade behavior to flip somebody off, right? So there's nothing that these students did that surprised me, but this photo landed on the front page of the USA Today. And this photo also included all of the girls' names. And this photo is of the number one under 14 softball team in America. And they were mad at the other team because they were being rude. This was uploaded to Snapchat, it went to Instagram, it went international news in less than one day. And so talking to students about their digital footprint, what you post can become permanent. What you post can cancel your opportunity in your future. You know, these brains are very underdeveloped. This was like a five-second moment in time that has now destroyed the digital footprint of these girls. If you Google their names, this photo comes up about 150 times. And there's no way to scrub it from the internet unless you have lots and lots of money. And so I find this disgusting, to be honest with you. I find it really, really difficult for our students to manage themselves in this environment with no training. And so I wish I could tell you that the training at the school level has 
been escalated. Um, it's not just a school's job to train kids on digital citizenship and digital leadership. It is a parent responsibility. If you're handing it over, you have to know that your child is going to be exposed to this and much, much worse. So as I um, kind of round out the end of my presentation, the platform that I stand on is really giving students dignity. Um, my goal for my own daughters is as they enter high school, can they go into a large high school knowing who they are and what they stand for? Can they meander amongst different groups of students fluidly and stand up for themselves as well as stand up for others? Can they be what we call a social justice champion? In order to become socially competent, I need to be able to know how do I advocate? We say things to kids like, if you see something, say something. That is great at the airport for TSA, but it is still not cool to report. If you are concerned about school shootings, if you are concerned about suicide, you need to be teaching students and any youth you come into contact with about the difference between telling on somebody and a safety issue. That is also part of being socially competent. Students know well before we do when something's going to go down. Typically six to eight weeks before something happens on a school campus, kids are like, oh yeah, I knew that was gonna happen. And my question is, why didn't you tell anyone? And they said, well, I did. And the person either overreacted or completely underreacted, so I stopped reporting. And or, if I tell my parents that so-and-so is gonna do something awful or is contemplating taking their life, my mom or dad might take my phone and there's no way I'm losing my phone. It is my lifeline, it is my support network, and so I am unwilling to sell out the friendship and I am unwilling to lose my device. And so as we look at this platform of dignity, um, dignity, the definition of dignity is one's inherent worth. Any child, and some adults as well, daily are having their dignity challenge. Somebody is coming after a student, trying to strip them of their dignity. That is the base of what bullying is, is one kid or one adult trying to stomp on the dignity of a student. And again, without the ability to stand up for your dignity or have skills to do that, it gets stomped on quite a lot. On the front of respect, the definition, the Latin root is respectus, a mutual admiration for another person. A child cannot respect an adult that has stomped on their dignity. A child cannot respect a fellow student or sibling who has stomped on their dignity. Yet we as adults force respect all the time. And I can tell you we spend about $5 million on these beautiful banners at every school in America that says kindness and respect and citizenship. And kids are walking under those banners, flipping each other off and saying horrible things to each other because they have lost respect for the word respect. Because they watch adults and they watch students strip them of, the, of their dignity all the time. So if our goal is to have students respect each other and respect adults and adults respect adults and students, we have to redefine that dignity is yours to keep and that no one has the right to take it away from you. We could improve so much on the youth mental health front and adult mental health front. Imagine as a third grader knowing dignity is yours to keep. 
What does that child look like in sixth grade? In eighth grade, when someone says, want to smoke pot? And they're like, nope, I don't want to do that. In 10th grade, on their first date, somebody trying to do something they're not ready for, knowing dignity is mine, nope, I'm not ready for that. Knowing how to set boundaries and knowing how to maintain your dignity is a lifelong skill. And so this coincides with social media in that your child or any child's dignity will be challenged almost daily on social media. And the ability to know how to triage that is absolutely essential. And I think that's really one of the pieces um, that we're missing out on. Um, one of my favorite people in the world is Dr. Brene Brown. If you don't know her, you need to know her. Um, she's a researcher out of UT Austin, and she researches uh, shame and guilt. But she has a short piece on dignity that I hope we're going to play. Don't walk through the world looking for evidence that you don't belong, because you will always find it. Yes. Don't walk through the world looking for evidence that you're not enough, because you'll always find it. Our worth and our belonging are not negotiated with other people. We carry those inside of our hearts. And so for me, I know who I am. I'm clear about that. And I'm not going to negotiate that with you. I will negotiate a contract with you. I will negotiate maybe even a topic with you. But I'm not going to negotiate who I am with you. Because then, and this is, I think, the heart of the book, then I may fit in for you but I no longer belong to myself. And that is a betrayal I am not willing to do anymore. I spent the first 30 years of my life doing that. I'm not willing to betray myself anymore to fit in with you. I just can't do it. So the difference between Brene Brown, who's 55, and kids is they don't know who they are yet. And they don't know that it's not okay for somebody to take their dignity away. And so they are constantly betraying themselves to fit in. And so if we can teach youth at a very young age that dignity is theirs to keep, I truly believe that they will know that it's not negotiable, that this is who I am, and you attacking me is not okay, and here I am, I'm going to set this boundary. And we can certainly have conflict with each other, um, but I'm not going to let you walk all over me and or take something away from me that is so dear to me. And so as I transition lastly into, and um, Tim did a wonderful job of uh, youth brain development and all the things about the brain, I think um, for parents especially, grandparents as well, understanding the difference between different types of screen time. Um, Tim talked about TV. I'm going to talk a little bit about the different types of screen time. Um, One of the best silver linings of COVID has been that you are now seeing how genius our kids are. Um, Many parents have said, like, I had no idea how to do this online schooling. Kids are showing us how to do that. So good screen time is what I call digital vegetables. That's the critical thinking skills, the good content that you want them to have. Um, Some of them are even becoming entrepreneurs and doing things online um, that just blow your mind. That's the digital vegetables. So not all screen time is the same. The digital candy is what we worry about, and you'll see the difference in the blood flow and the engagement in the brain from the top brain into the bottom brain. Um, Certainly over the course of my career, starting in 2005 is when video games and smartphones came to campus. 
um, and watching students become more sedentary, less engaged, we worry about too much digital candy. Can you have a little bit? Yes. Um, do you need digital vegetables? Absolutely. So the academic screen time that students are getting, especially now during COVID, that's the good stuff. That is making connections, good context, good content. So if you're worried about all of this screen time, I'd ask you to think about those two different categories. Um, my middle daughter loves to um, make slime. And so she gets on YouTube a lot. And a lot of parents are like, oh, you let your daughter on YouTube? I'm like, yeah, she's looking up slime recipes. And then she's making the slime and selling the slime. So those are leadership skills. Those are marketing skills. Those are entrepreneurship skills. So even YouTube can be useful. Um, I had a man in one of my audience say, like, yeah, I use YouTube to improve my golf swing. So a lot of parents will ask me, like, why is my son watching YouTube, watching a gamer play the game that he is playing? Like, it doesn't make sense. It's all strategy, right? And so not all screen time is the same. And I would ask you to think about, you know, does your family have a balance with their own screen time? Um, where we do worry about digital horror, um, and I don't say this lightly, but I do a lot of work on the front of suicide prevention. And parents will ask me like, oh, when should I give my child a device? And my first you know, statement out of my mouth is when you're ready for them to see pornography. When you are ready for them to be exposed to pornography, that's when you should give a device and that should be never, correct? So there are pages and pages teaching our children all sorts of things. This is a page about literally how to take your life. Pages and pages, thousands of posts of people that are very serious about taking their lives. And so when we look at the national youth suicide rate, and in the state of Arizona, it's the leading cause of death, age 10 to 14 and age 15 to 24. So when parents ask me, like, how did he know how to attempt? How did she know how to cut herself? Thank you, Instagram. Thank you, Instagram. And so knowing what's out there, you have to be engaged. You have to stay in the know. You have to know what your student is seeing. So imagine a young girl laying in her bed with her device, 13 years old, looking at photos of how to get skinnier. So again, exposure to content. Um, pages and pages of different types of um, photos. These are typical photos that um, you would see on a student page. Um, sex, drugs, and rock and roll still is a thing in high school. Um, when you see photos on your child's phone or a grandchildren's phone, or you hear from a friend like, I don't know what to do, I found something on my child's phone. Remember that the only way to get like street cred is what I call it, street cred, um, in the friendship group is to post a lot and to post edgy, outrageous, risky things. And so drugs and alcohol have been around for a very long time. Sex has been around for a very long time. So it does not surprise me that this generation that has been given devices is posting things that you and I used to experiment with as well. Whether it was your first cigarette, that's now vaping. Whether it was your first kiss, that's now a scene like this. And so these are good kids taking typical risks, but the stakes are very high and the risks are much higher and the substances are more potent. 
And so really staying in the know, supervising, monitoring phones, looking at phones, and having an app to monitor and supervise for you is essential. There are 17 different apps out there that will do the work for you. Um, I can't tell you how many parents I have sat with, whether it's stuff like this or more to self-harm and suicide, where parents were like, he was a good kid, I just never looked at his phone. Good kids still struggle, good kids still have distress. And so for me, it's really about a public health approach to student distress. There are many, many children doing very well. So many kids who are really truly doing very well. Where we're missing the mark with our kids is when they move into distress, which is the second lane, we're not recognizing the signs. And when we see the signs, sometimes we're not willing or able to get them back to well-being. It is absolutely crucial and essential that you capture them in the second lane. As they move into crisis, we have few students moving into crisis, but the resources for crisis are limited. I live in Phoenix. Uh, we have 7 million people. We have 225 adolescent youth beds for students in crisis. We are on a wait list every single night for students that are exhibiting self-harm or suicide attempts. And so it's essential, again, to capture them in that lane of distress so that we can move them into well-being. Lastly, on the front of social media and how to look for signs of distress. This is probably one of the biggest learnings that I really in the last three to five years. Um, this, this is a Twitter account. If you don't know what Twitter is, it's a social media platform. It's like, um, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like, I tied my shoe. Like, you can write two sentences. You can't write a whole bunch. Um, so kids will get on Twitter, and typically boys like to post things about sports, things they're involved in. Girls are typically not as enthralled with Twitter because you can't write very much. Um, so this is a Twitter feed of a student um, that completed a suicide on one of our school campuses with 4,000 students in the building. He brought a gun to school and ended his life on campus. Prior to ending his life on campus, you can see there are very subtle, insidious signs of distress. But you'd have to know what you're looking for. You'd have to be paying attention. You'd have to be a parent that's engaged. And so he talks about um, when a girl asks to be just friends, it's basically telling you to F off. That's a breakup. <clears throat> Excuse me. Life has fallen apart in front of my own eyes, and it's all my fault. That's a trigger, right? So those two things are two signs of distress. Now, is that a typical teenage statement to make? Life's falling apart. I'm doing crappy. It, absolutely. But coupled together, along with several other tweets that came after that, was a blaring call for help, truly a desperate cry for help. And so when you have a suicide in your community, you're four times as likely to have another one if you don't take care of it in the right way. And our schools are just now starting to become equipped as to how to do that. Suicide is still, the word suicide, greatly, like fear, I, I can just see on administrators' faces when I ask, you know, I'm gonna talk about social media, but I'm also going to talk about suicide. And if they say, well, you can't talk about suicide, that's not something we want to confront, then I say I can't come. Because this is truly an epidemic, and it is truly something that our kids are struggling with. And so as you look at things like this, his last tweet out was help. You'll see that 
several hundred students retweeted his tweet and liked his tweet. Those were not kids making fun of him. Those were kids saying, yeah, man, my life's falling apart too. They were relating to him, but they didn't report. They heard about he you know, got in trouble, he broke up with his girlfriend, they knew what was going on in his life. But going back to, I'm not willing to sell out the friendship, and I don't feel comfortable going to an adult because they're gonna totally freak out and make it worse, or maybe they're gonna underreact and not do anything about it. And so if we're going to be a village, if you're going to be a good villager, you have to be a trusted and competent adult. You have to understand social media. It's 2020. There's no going back. It's only advancing at the speed of light. And so as we you know, talk about suicide attempts and things that happen in the community, I would just ask you to think about how do you take those students from well-being into distress and capture them there? Marcus did not want to die. Anybody that's attempting suicide wants out of their pain. This language that he posted was the story of his pain. He was calling for help. The kids knew, but the adults weren't following. The adults weren't paying attention. And so we can intervene. There is tons of help for students or adults that are struggling, but we have to be paying attention and we have to recognize that language has so much meaning. And so our kids are calling for it. And if you are supervising, you will be able to see that as they post. So I'll round out um, lastly with something that Tim also mentioned. Um, we got to get back to basics, the three or four things that every human being needs, nature, movement, physical touch, and connection. Whenever somebody calls me and says, my kid is so depressed, or my child during COVID, I'm so worried, they're so isolated, they can't see their friends, my first ingredient or recipe for them is, are they moving their body? Are they getting outside? Do you have some sort of physical affection within the household? We all need those things to be human, and we've gotten away so much so because of the devices from these four principles that are truly the basis of child development and human development. And so I'd encourage you just to think about how to infuse some of those things if you don't have that. The weather here is fabulous, and so um, we can't do that so much in Phoenix sometimes when it's 115 degrees out. Um, but we still you know, can move around inside as well. So um, I'll round out just with some resources. I've said a whole lot about what to look for. Um, kids want a say in their own device use. If you're handing it over, they need to have dignity in the use of their device. Almost every household in America is doing what I call the dance. I give you this for Christmas. Oh, you hit your brother, give it back to me. I'm really tired after work. You can have it back because I don't want to deal with you. Oh, you didn't do well on your math assignment. Give me your phone. Um, it's this constant dance back and forth. In the middle of the dance, you are losing relationship with your child. In the middle of the dance, when the stakes are high and somebody is offering them drugs or alcohol, asking them to have sex, asking them to do something risky, guess who they're not going to come to? Because you've been dancing for so long, they do not trust you. And so we really have to take a look at where does the student have a say in the use of their device? And as a family, redefine. There are natural consequences to your actions. 
if you hit your brother, a consequence could be that you lose your phone, but how do we replace the skill of not hitting your brother? Because <laughs> taking the phone away does not change the behavior. Taking the phone away does not improve the math grade. It might temporarily, but the skill is time management, organization, studying, right? So taking the phone away is, seems great, but it often doesn't yield the results you're after. Um, in addition, some other uh, resources, some of my favorite books. The Self-Driven Child, probably one of the best books that I've read. It's a 2019 release. Um, just really goes over how to give your child dignity, how to give them more control over their own life. You should not be dressing your 11-year-olds. You should not be making their lunch either. I have two of them, I refuse, right? They are fully capable of doing that. And so a really great book on coping, resilience, and maintaining dignity. On the front of boys, um, Dr. Michael Gurian, I had the opportunity to work with him for a few years. Really, truly the best book on boys called Saving Our Sons. There's also a huge uh, two chapters at the back on technology and video gaming in particular. Um, on the front of girls, Untangled, the seven life transitions that young girls go through through adulthood. Um, chapter one is allergic to questions. And chapter two is departing childhood. So I know some of you are with me in the allergic to questions category. Um, in addition, under pressure, um, our young girls are, are seeing epic proportions of anxiety and depression. This is a great resource. And then lastly, how to raise an adult. Um, Dr. Julie Lithcott-Hames was the dean of students at Stanford University, and she saw a lot of freshmen coming in that, again, had a 4.6 at whatever school. But they would come to her and say, you know, is there somebody that can do my laundry? Because I just don't really know how. So it's a very humorous read about how to raise an adult. So um, I've said a whole lot in a short amount of time, but I just want to thank you for your attention today and your attendance today. And I'll linger um, for a little bit uh, during the lunch hour if you have any questions. And um, my contact info is on that first slide that I'll put back up. So thank you. Thank you.